I'd like to begin by reading a, a parable that was written about 150 years ago by a Danish philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, and uh, this is what he wrote. Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his kingliness uh, tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body with royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist him, but would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly or would she live with him in fear, <clears throat> nursing a private grief for the life that she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could he know? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she a humble maiden, and to let shared love cross over the gulf between them. The king, convinced he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, freedom, resolved to descend. He clothed himself as a beggar and approached her cottage incognito, with a worn cloak fluttering loosely about him. It was no mere disguise, but a new identity that he took on. He renounced the throne to win her hand. And that, of course, is a parable of what Jesus did when he became one of us. He renounced his throne in heaven to win a bride. His power and his glory were veiled because he didn't want people following him for the wrong reasons. Jesus came in humility and obscurity because he came looking for a bride. And uh, we read about... Uh, uh, those who believe in Jesus are collectively called the body of Christ. And so you need to know here today, wherever you are in your relationship with God, wherever you are in your heart, Jesus is seeking a bride. A couple, a couple years ago, I was talking with one of my nieces in Mississippi, and we were, I was asking her about her relationship with God. And she said, well, actually, Jesus and I are seeing other people right now. And that may be where you are. Uh, you may have seen Jesus in the past, but right now you're taking a break. Or you may have gone to church when you were a kid, and now you've wandered back to church. That's fine. Wherever you are in your relationship with God, know that Jesus is seeking a bride. In our passage today, it first speaks about Jesus' humility while on earth. We're in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, and he said that Jesus emptied himself and humbled himself. This is what Paul wrote. He's urging the believers in Philippi to be humble toward one another. And he writes, have this, have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, he, being, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus first emptied himself by becoming one of us, 
And after he was one of us, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so that was the focus of Good Friday, right? That's what we celebrated and remembered and rehearsed on Friday night. But today is Easter. Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. And so today we're going to spend our time thinking about God's response to Jesus humbling himself. And so we read in verses 9 through 11 that God exalted Jesus and gave him the name which is above every name. After describing what Jesus did, verses 5 through 8, now Paul tells us what God did in verses 9 through 11. This is his response. For this reason also, verse 9, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And so since Jesus humbled himself as fully as possible, God exalted him as high as possible. Many times the the exaltation of Christ is described in two phases. You find that in scripture. First, he was raised bodily from the dead. And then second, he was exalted to the right hand of the father. I love the way Murray Harris explains it. He says, by raising Jesus from the dead, God declared that Jesus is alive and he lives forever By exalting him to the right hand, uh, he declares that Jesus is enthroned and he reigns forever. And that's what we've been talking about the last two months. We've been talking about Jesus' uh, present ministry at the right hand of God. That's where he dispenses grace. He gives everything that's promised of God's right hand, power, grace, mercy. We come to God in Jesus' name so that he can give us mercy and grace at just the right time. Paul says that God bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And so whatever this name is, it's something that was given to Jesus after his, uh, after his resurrection. There are actually a couple of other scriptures besides this one that mention that name. One of those is found in, in Revelation 3.20. And Jesus is speaking of those who overcome, those who persevere. And Jesus says, I will write on him the name of my God, And the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He says, I will write my new name on those who persevere, on those who keep their faith. And so scholars and theologians and Christians often debate, okay, what is this name? Is it the name Jesus? Well, it's probably not Jesus. That's the name that was given at his birth. You shall call his name Jesus. Uh, what is this name? Well, it's important to just to just remember, what's the function of a name? In the Bible, a name isn't just a label that you slap on somebody, and so that, that uh, distinguishes one person from another. In the Bible, a name is someone's character or even someone's reputation. And a classic example is in Exodus 33 and 34. In, in Exodus 33, God says to Moses, I will proclaim my name to you. And then you get to chapter 35, and it says that God appeared to Moses. It says he, he says, uh, he passed in front of Moses and he proclaimed, here's the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And so when God proclaimed his name, he proclaimed his character, something that was true about him. And so in Philippians 2.9, when we read that Jesus was given a new name, God bestowed on Jesus a name that is above every name, he's saying that when God highly exalted Jesus, he declared something that is true about Jesus, 
something that was proven through his life and death and resurrection. Namely, that he is greater, he is higher, he is mightier than any other being in the universe. If you have a name that's above every name, you are tops. You are top dog. Some of you have, have a name, right? Some of you are kind of a big deal. Some of you, you would say, hey, just when you go into this place, just, just mention my name and you'll have a door opened for you, right? And so it, it works in this world. If you go to the throne of God in Jesus' name, that has great clout. That opens doors. Jesus said, you pray in my name, just ask what you want. You abide in me, let my word abide in you. Pray in my name, God will give you what you want. And so that's what the apostles did. They prayed in Jesus' name. They healed people in Jesus' name. Silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus, walk. Uh, They spoke in Jesus' name. And during his earthly life, it wasn't obvious that, that he was going to be exalted high above all others. As a matter of fact, when he walked this earth, people could do whatever they want. They had their way with Jesus. They could ignore him. Uh, they could arrest him. They could beat him. They could spit on him. They could ridicule him. They could crucify him. They did all those things. But after he was crucified, God's response was to raise him from the dead and exalt him above everyone else, to give him a name above all others. And this is confirmed in verses 10 and 11. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. In other words, in every realm, the heavenly realm, the earthly realm, and the realm of the dead, in every realm, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so every created rational being in every realm will one day submit to Jesus as we'll see, that's either glad submission or forced submission. But what he's saying is every created being in every realm will one day acknowledge Jesus' lordship. And when Paul speaks about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing, if you were Jewish and you knew the Old Testament, immediately your mind would have gone to Isaiah 45. And so I want to take some time to, to think about that chapter and notice why Paul is quoting this because it's a powerful point that he's making. And so Isaiah 45 is the chapter where God says, I'm going I'm to I'm use this pagan king, Cyrus. Actually, he is a Messiah. He's not the Messiah, but he is a Messiah because he's anointed to bring my people back from exile in Babylon. And we read that and we wonder, is that a good idea? Can God even do that? Doesn't he have to only work through people that are devoted to him? Well, actually, when you are the Lord, you are the creator of heaven and earth. If you have sovereignty over all the earth, if the, yours is the, if the earth is the Lord and all who dwell in it, the earth and everything in it, then you can, you can use anybody for any purpose. You really can. And so God was not some tribal deity where his power extended just to the border of Israel and then other gods. No, he was the, the creator of heaven and earth. And so, of course, he could summon a pagan king, say, Cyrus, you're, you're a messiah for this purpose, and I will use you. God not only deserved the worship of the nations, he wanted the worship of the nations. And so, in Isaiah 45, 22, we find this invitation. He says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. 
In saying there's no other, he's not saying that no other gods exist. He's saying that no other gods compare to me. He's saying I am incomparable. And so this was a standing offer throughout the Old Testament. Anybody in any nation could turn to the God of Israel in faith and be saved. God was, again, he wasn't a tribal deity. He wasn't only for the people of Israel. Anybody who turned to him could be saved. And then in the next verse, Isaiah 45 Uh, 23 is the verse that Paul referenced in Philippians 2. And notice here who is speaking this statement. This is Yahweh. This is the God of Israel. He says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. In other words, this is irrevocable. This is going to happen. He says, this word has gone, gone forth. It will not turn back. That to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will, slayer, will swear uh, allegiance. And so he says, to me, one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. This irrevocable word has gone forth that one day his sovereignty will be acknowledged, and the context makes clear, by his friends and his enemies. Everybody will one day swear allegiance to him. And so if we go back to Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, and an astounding statement. Paul employs what we just read in Isaiah 45, and he claims that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so behavior that the Lord said would be directed to him, Paul says, is directed to Jesus. And he did this over and over and over in the, in the, in the Gospels. Uh, confessing that Jesus is Lord is equivalent to declaring that Jesus is Yahweh. Okay? And, and Jesus the Son is distinct from God the Father, but they are one in essence. And so Jesus would say things like the disciples would say, show us the Father. He'd say, you've been with me this long and you still don't get it? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. And so if you've seen Jesus, you've seen Yahweh. So consider a a fascinating account in Acts chapter 9. And this is when Saul, that was the Apostle Paul's Jewish name. Saul's on his way to Damascus. He was going to persecute Christians there, drag them back, put them in in prison uh, in Jerusalem. And on the way, a light from heaven blinded him. And we read this in Acts 9, verses 4 and 5. And he, Saul, fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He thought this was Yahweh. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so Paul knew that this was a divine voice. When, when you're blinded from heaven and you hear this voice, you know that it's God. And so uh, apparently uh, he was confused that God would ask him, why are you persecuting me? Saul knew he was persecuting Christians, but he thought he was serving God. And so he was confused. If God says, I'm persecuting, God says, why are you persecuting me? Maybe I don't know who God is. And so he says, who are you? Lord, and the answer comes back, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
Paul, Jesus is so identified with his church that if you persecute his church, his people, you persecute him. We are the body of Christ. But the God that Paul thought he was serving was actually Jesus. And this is not a Christian innovation. There, there's actually the, the hint of the Godhead in the Old Testament. It's more complex than we can deal with right now, but, but it, it was not an innovation. There were, there were these, these hints of the Godhead. But because of this identification of Jesus as Lord, Jesus as Yahweh, Paul could write that one day every knee would bow to him in every realm and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. And again, just like in the context in Isaiah 45, it will either be glad worship, yes, I long for the day to bow down and confess Jesus is Lord, or it will be forced submission. But every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Now, have you ever wondered, why are we told this kind of thing? Why are we given these glimpses of the future, of things that will happen at the return of Christ? And uh, by the way, this is not some isolated, some, some weird occurrence. In 20 out of 27 books in the New Testament, the return of Christ is mentioned. But why are we told about that day, that in that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess? We find it throughout the, throughout the New Testament, well, you find it throughout the Bible. We're told about that day so that we can live this day in light of that day. Paul makes this not so subtle point, suggestion, you don't want to wait till that day to bow the knee. You don't want that to be the first time when you bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. And this is, this is too important a, a topic to, to kind of tiptoe around. And so I would just ask you, in your heart right now, do you bow the knee to Jesus Christ? In your heart of heart, do you say, Jesus is Lord? Everybody serves, some, serves somebody. Everybody has a Lord in the sense of a master. Are you your own master? Do you, do you, or do you bow down to some, someone else? Or do you honestly bow down to Jesus? Would you declare Jesus is Lord? And as you ponder that question, keep in mind a very sweet truth that the one who was given the name above all names is still, he's the same one who emptied himself and humbled himself. We're not talking about two different people. We're not talking about a split personality. This is one person. This is Jesus Christ. When Jesus was given the name above all names, he didn't cease being humble. He is still the king who came to win the hand of a maiden. He's still seeking a bride. He remains the one who said this. This is in Matthew 11. He was speaking to the crowds. And again, this was a shocking thing for the crowds to hear. They wouldn't have expected Jesus to say this. But he said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. In other words, become my disciple, become a follower of mine, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so a Jewish person listening to Jesus would have, would have expected him to say, go to God, learn of him, and he will give you rest. But Jesus said, no, come to me, learn of me, and I will give you rest. Again, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Yahweh. They're distinct, but he is Yahweh. 
And Jesus often said things about himself that were said about God in the Old Testament. Again, he could say this because he is Yahweh in the flesh. And notice that Jesus said, we can become his disciples and learn from him. Why? For I am gentle and humble in heart. And I don't know what your experience with Jesus has been. And you may not be able to distinguish your experience with Jesus and your experience with the church or your experience with Jesus and your experience with life in general. And so life can be harsh. Life can be brutal. And people can be mean and arrogant. Christians can be mean and arrogant, but not Jesus. Jesus is gentle and humble and heart at heart. He will never be harsh and arrogant toward you. It's not in his, his character. He's like his father who's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And so this is a powerful combination. We see it here in Philippians 2. We see it in many places. And this is in the, you know, the child's prayer, the prayer you pray before a meal. God is great and God is good. Now we thank him. God is great. Jesus is great. He's exalted. He's highly exalted, but he's also good. He's gentle and humble in heart. If, If Jesus were only highly exalted, all bets are off. He may or may not be good. If he were only good, Well, that's nice, but does he have the power? Well, actually, he's got it all. He is highly exalted. He's great, and he's good. He's gentle and humble in heart. And so there's beauty, there's power in entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I recently read a story, it's in the latest issue of Christianity Today. There's a woman named Rosalind uh, Picard, who teaches at MIT, and I read what she does, but I, I really don't understand it. It has something to do with computers, okay? She's a genius, and uh, she said that she grew up as a straight-A student, but she didn't see any, any need for God. Actually, when she was a kid, she declared herself an, a- an atheist, and her view is that Christians were, uh, had to be ignoramuses, you know? I mean, they're just dumb people. And she was babysitting for this couple. She really respected them. They were very sharp, as she said. The dad was a, a physician. And one night after they handed her a paycheck, they said, would you like to go to church with us? And she said she was stunned that people that seemingly sharp and smart would actually go to church. And she wrote that when Sunday morning came around, I told them I had a stomach ache. And they invited me again the following week, but once more I came down with another phantom stomachache. And the more they persisted, the more I struggled to invent convincing excuses. You try faking an illness to a doctor. (laughs) And so eventually they chose a different tact. They said, actually, what, what really matters is not whether you go to church. What really matters is what you believe. Have you ever read the Bible? And she hadn't. And she said, well, I want to be an intelligent, well, well-educated person, so maybe I should read the best-selling book of all time. And so she had an old Bible, and she started reading. Their suggestion was read the book of Proverbs. It's 31 chapters. She took a month, read one proverb a day. And much to her surprise, she found it fascinating. She found she had to stop reading because she had to stop and think. So after she read Proverbs, she said, you know, I think I'm going to read the entire Bible. So she went and got a modern translation of the Bible, and she started reading. And she said, as she read, she had the strange sense 
of being spoken to, which was disturbing and yet oddly attractive. And she began wondering whether there might actually be a God who exists. That's a valid question. She went back through, she started reading through the Bible again a second time. This time her intent was to disprove or to debunk what she found written in the Bible. She studied other faiths and she, she, her real desire was to put this whole religion phase behind her. And while part of her was increasingly eager to spend time with the God of the Bible, another part of her just wanted to move on. She graduated from high school, went to college. She was a freshman in college and a guy that she was very impressed with, guess what? invited her to church. There, there are not many bad reasons to go to church. Uh, this is the way it happens a lot of times. So he goes to church with a guy, and the pastor was talking about there's this difference between believing that there is a God and actually following God. And he also asked a simple question, similar to what I asked a few minutes ago. Who is the Lord of your life? She'd never considered that. And this pastor talked about all the tragic things that can go wrong when you put a human on the throne of your life. Another way to ask it in light of the passage we've been looking at, this is a question, do you believe that your name is higher than any other name? Do you believe that you have authority and you don't have to answer to anybody? Or do you acknowledge that there is a name above your name and you should bow to that name? Well, Rosalind was intrigued at the possibility that Jesus was actually willing to be Lord of her life, and so she decided to take this risk. Sometimes it's called Pascal's wager. If you put your faith in Christ and it's nothing, what have you lost? If, it's, if you put your faith in Christ and he really is God, then you've gained everything, everything to gain, nothing to lose. She wrote this, after praying, Jesus Christ, I ask you to be Lord of my life, my world changed dramatically. It's as if a flat, black and white existence suddenly turned full color and three-dimensional. But I lost nothing of my urge to seek new knowledge. In fact, I felt emboldened to ask even tougher questions about how the world works. I felt joy and freedom, but also a heightened sense of responsibility and challenge. You will find many people in this room that would have a similar testimony. My story would be very similar to that. I thought when I, when I was 20 years old, honestly, when I, when I started hanging around real Christians, I thought if I became a Christian, my, my world would be squeezed into a small box. I would have to fit in and become just like everybody else. But what we found, many of us have found, that when we put, enter into a relationship with Jesus, we become ourselves. We are free to be who we're, we were created to be, and we find life and freedom and satisfaction that we haven't found anywhere else. And so this invitation we saw in, in Isaiah 45 is still, still available. Yahweh says, come to me, all the nations, and be saved. In Acts 4, Peter was talking to a crowd and he said, there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And so this is an offer for you. And like this, this, this woman I described, Rosalind, you don't have to have all your questions answered. Chances are, if you say, until I have every one of my questions answered, no way. You don't have to have your questions answered. You need to, just need to bow the knee and trust, put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, exalted, raised from the dead. And so I'm going to give you this opportunity now. If you would bow your head with me, and I'm going to pray silently. 
And you may have not come in here today thinking, yeah, this is the day I'm going to bow the knee to Jesus. This is the day where where I'm going to confess Jesus is Lord. But if God's moved in your heart, if, if this is what you desire, this relationship, this life, this freedom, just pray silently as I pray. Heavenly Father, I confess that I have have put myself on the throne of my life. I have been my own master, my own Lord. God, some things have gone okay, but, but many areas of my life are just absolutely a mess. I have turned from you. I've offended you. I've sinned against you. But I believe that Jesus, the sinless one, died on the cross as my substitute. He died for my sins. He paid the penalty I deserved. I believe, God, that you raised him from the dead and you exalted him higher than any other name. And so I confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord. I bow the knee to him and I confess that he is Lord. I want to learn what that means. I want to walk with him and experience him. And so if you prayed that today, you prayed that in faith, God says, you're on. Let's go. Let's have this life together. And I would encourage you to tell somebody if you've prayed that prayer this morning. I would love to know about it. You can just write me a note on the card, the connection card, and put it in the, in the bag. But God, this week we want to walk with you. We want to experience both the greatness and the goodness of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he's humble and gentle in heart. We thank you that he also has all power at your right hand. So teach us to walk with him. Teach us to love him, experience him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.